believe these sermons will really help people. And that my heart is, you know, I'm preaching these sermons um, out of who, who I am, so to speak. This is something God used in my life a long time ago um, as a pattern to teach me and to bring me to a personal maturity. The Travels of David, this is something really old for me, something back 20 years ago, literally. So this is something God's deeply done in my life for a long time. And so this comes out of who I am, not just a, a study that I did. And so um, if y'all would, after this, you know, as little moving around as possible and as few distractions. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for moving in power. I thank you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, tonight to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, that Holy Spirit, you would um, move in a way, Lord, to captivate us, Lord. Lord, I pray that by the Spirit of God, our eyes and ears to be eyes and ears of the Spirit, that our hearts and minds are good, fertile soil, and that you would come upon me, Lord, and speak through me under a mighty anointing and in the glory, that this will go out as living seed to truth, sown into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes, that this will bear fruit. Let the winds of your spirit carry the word of the Lord out to the nations everywhere it's supposed to go, and let your holy angels watch over it. Lord, we agree together we bind up everything that would try to distract or hinder the word. Right now, we bind it in Jesus' name. We bind that which would try to steal the seed in it from any person. In the name of Jesus, we bind the enemy right now. And Lord, I pray that your word will go out as the washing of the water of the word that will cleanse. Lord, as light of truth that shines to dispel the darkness and lies, evil and deception of the enemy brings truth. And it will go out, Lord, like a mighty hammer breaking down what needs to go and a sword that's going to penetrate and cut away and break through. Lord, let there be a mighty move of the Spirit of God. And Lord, let everything be accomplished through this, this word tonight and through this series that your will to be done. Lord, we ask you to watch over your word as you promised uh, to make sure that it's going to go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do as you promised it would. We stand in faith and we thank you, Lord, for it and we bless you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so tonight I'm going to deal with the travels of David. This is going to be sermon part two. And just as a prelude to this, now I really believe you guys are going to get something out of this. I want you all, if you would, to really give me your best ear because I'm preaching on some stuff I've never talked about. And there'll be some that I have, but some that I never have. And I really want people to grab this. But I'm going to start by just kind of recapping on a few things. So first off, Last week, I talked about how the glory of God came. Remember, Adam and Eve, uh, before they sinned and they were naked, the word there is arom in Hebrew, A-R-O-M. And it actually means partially nude in Hebrew. But after they sinned, the Bible says they were naked and they knew it. They were ashamed. They went and covered themselves with fig leaves. And the word there in Hebrew is arom, E-R-O-M. It's two different words. And arom means completely nude. So this is interesting because something happened when they sinned about a clothing, even though they were naked. And I know what it was because the Bible says God wraps himself with light as a garment. That even though Adam and Eve were physically nude, that there was a glory on them and that glory left when they sinned. The Bible said all sin and fall short of the glory. Okay. So I believe that as that glory lifted, um, and the curse came that one of the things Jesus paid for at the cross was that as he died nude on a cross 
was that the glory of the Lord can come back in our lives. And this is a big deal because we need the glory of God. We need his presence. All right, and I want to say this too up front, and I really want people to hear me about this because I believe this is very important. It's interesting nowadays in a lot of places, a lot of people have quit calling the church sanctuary a sanctuary. And they call it an auditorium, which I'm not trying to be critical, but I'm just trying to say that's a mindset. Years ago, um, we always called a church sanctuary a sanctuary because it was considered to be a holy place. It was a place where God's presence was, and it was a place that needed to be treated differently than other places. And there was, a, there was an element of reverence. And in the full gospel circles of which my family raised me in, you know, people would, would maybe come early to church and would pray and really set the atmosphere. People went through where there were pews, you know, and they would anoint them and pray over them. And this stuff really, people walked the aisles just kind of praying in the spirit. And they considered the sanctuary a holy place. And the glory of God would come in and we'd have powerful meetings. And that seems to me like there's something that has shifted there. There's a mindset. And let me just encourage people. I remember one time, and I'll never forget this, and I pray that this story stays with you too. But I remember one time I went with a group to the Brownsville Revival, which I went many times. But this particular time, I was with a group from a church that I was going to at the time, and I was only probably like 20 years old or something. And I remember that when I was there, that one of the men that took us was one of the deacons in the church, so he's a leader. And I remember, you know, you could tell he was excited about being there. He was a really nice guy. I mean, he was laid back. This wasn't uptight. It wasn't like a religious thing. It wasn't oppressive at all. He was, he was a real nice guy. It was fun. It was relaxed. But I could tell that as we were sitting in the Brownsville Sanctuary, that he had such a reverence about him, that we're in a holy place. You know, God's presence is here. And I remember that even though he would smile and talk to us, that he was also conscious of God's presence and what was going on. And it's like he was wanting to prepare himself to receive. He even brought with him, there was thousands of people there. He even brought with him like a little thing of oil. And I remember just seeing him, because all this, you know, I was learning, I was young. I remember seeing him have some anointing oil to himself, and he was anointing his head, he anointed his hands, and he put it up. And he was really there He wanted to be set apart. He wanted to be spiritually ready. But he was very reverential about where we were. And that always stayed with me. Because now it seems like a lot of times people come into church um, and they call it a church auditorium. And it's just a social thing. And people are just, you know, always on their phones, always talking and maybe even talking about things they shouldn't be talking about in the presence of God. And let me just encourage you to be really careful about what you're doing in God's presence. Because, you know, some people, they have a rebellious streak and they're going to, you know how they are, they're going to buck me or whatever. But let me just tell you that you're not really coming up against a preacher. You're coming up against the Holy Spirit of God. You're in the presence of God. So be careful that you're not doing things, saying things that would grieve the Holy Spirit or would cause him to have a problem. You hear what I'm saying? And I know for me personally, I want, when I come in here, and I pray, I always feel, even though I'm by myself, I always feel like this is a holy place. The presence of God is here. And I'm careful. You know, I, I'm just, man, this is, this is so hallowed. And I reverence God. I reverence his presence. I reverence the Holy Spirit. 
And I wouldn't want something to go on that I had a part of that would grieve the Holy Spirit or would cause any type of... See, here's how it works, and I'm going to move on. We've set this place apart as a holy place. So this is different than anything around it, isn't it? When you set something apart unto God, it becomes holy because it's set apart. Then we go through and we pray over it. We, we bring it under the blood of Jesus. We anoint it. We pray. And the presence of God comes in that place. When that happens, from that point on, we have to treat that different. And the people, the individual people that are flippant and they might do things, I'm just going to remind them of the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament. Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament tried to go into God's presence just any flippant way they wanted to, and it cost them their life. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira were in that glorious revival God sent in the church, and here they were lying to God, and they ended up dropping dead in the New Testament. Now, some people say, well, it's the Old Testament. No, no. There's a common thread. There's a common thread about reverencing God and reverencing His house. Amen? The reason why I'm sharing that is because I really believe that... God is wanting to deposit a stronger glory in our midst than we've ever had. But God also wants us to reverence that and to be careful. Because the same glory and the same Holy Spirit that is moving in such a wonderful way, whenever people get into rebellion and people become divisive and people start doing things, it can actually bring a judgment on them. In other words, the same glory that's blessing them can turn around and, and judge them. You hear what I'm saying? And so I just want to warn people to be careful about the presence of God. Now, as I talk about this tonight, I'm going to be dealing with the travels of David. I'm mainly tonight, I'm taking this really slow, this Mikdash series, because I want to make sure that I cover everything really well. So tonight, this is kind of a prelude again, but I'm going to deal with the beginning of the travels of David. And I'll probably deal with this for, for several sermons, but I want tonight to talk about something I imagine that a lot of people here have never thought about. And I want to compare Saul and David, but I also want to show you some things that probably about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man, things like that you've probably never thought about. And then I'm going to close out by talking about iniquity. But how many knows that David had a heart for God's presence? David longed for the presence of the Lord. David was a mighty warrior. You know, he, he's, as the Bible says, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, David is tens of thousands, right? <laughs> David was a great warrior, but David also was a worshiper, and David was a prayer warrior, which worked perfect with him being that great champion for God, that great warrior, because those we have to learn how to connect with the Lord in worship and prayer if we're ever going to really be effective at defeating the enemy. You see what I'm saying? And so David's life, David did for spiritual authority what Abraham did for faith. Let me say it again. David did for spiritual authority what Abraham did for faith. And so David had such a heart for God that he eventually brought the ark to Jerusalem, in which I'm going to get to that as I go. Now, let me just open up with this about Saul and David. Everybody, please hear me about this because this is so important. 
Whenever Israel cried out for a king, it was not God's will that they have a secular king like that. God himself wanted to be their king, so to speak. They would seek him, he would speak to them. But they wanted a king like other nations. And so God allowed it, and as a matter of fact, God gave Israel the best that Israel had to offer. God took Saul. Saul, in every way, he was a very handsome man. He was athletic. He was a head taller than everybody else. So he was, he was tall. He had a kingly stature. I believe Saul was an intelligent man. And at the beginning, Saul was, was very humble. He was small in his own eyes at the beginning. Do you remember? He hid. And Saul was really in every way the absolute best. I can't emphasize this enough that Israel had to offer in the natural. But Saul ended up falling short in every way later on. And God even touched Saul. Saul, if you read it, Samuel anointed Saul and prayed for him and and prophesied. And he told uh, Saul that you're going to leave here. You're going to go up to this high place which I'll probably explain that later, but there were prophets and people that were praying and worshiping, and and Saul got up there and got mixed up in that anointing, and God really touched Saul. I mean, he had had an encounter. But how many knows that just having just an isolated encounter is different than really being prepared over a long period of time? And so Saul had an encounter, and Saul was everything that Israel wanted. And God gave him Saul. But we know the story that later Saul became disobedient and rebellious. Saul ended up falling short and God had to bring judgment on the house of Saul. Now, in the same way that Saul was everything in the natural that Israel could want, David was everything in the natural that Israel would have overlooked. David was not the most handsome. David was not well known. His family was not anything special. There was nothing about David in the natural. See, here's how it is. You know, you go out, kids are playing ball, and they all line up, you know, and they're all going to start picking their team. David was the one that didn't get picked. Saul was the one that got picked first. I'm trying to show you something, because here in a little bit, as I keep going, this is going to make a lot of sense. David in the natural did not make sense. But God saw something in David's heart. He was a man after God's own heart. And God put his hand on David. David worshipped in the fields. David was anointed by Samuel. But what made one of the biggest differences between Samuel, or rather Saul and David, was this. That David went through a grueling process. David was given an anointing. The Spirit of God came upon him in power. And David faced Goliath, and David began to move up in prominence, but then God saw what, what had happened with Saul, and he knew that David was going to have to be prepared. And so he allowed David to wander in those caves for around, you know, a lot of scholars believe it was around 16 years. That's a really long time. That David had a group of, of vagabonds, people that were misfits of society, that ended up kind of gathering around David. And because of the anointing on David's life, they became mighty men of valor. 
But really, they were misfits. They, they would have been considered losers in society. They were the people that didn't fit in where they, where they were. And, and they, they were just kind of uh, wandering aimlessly in life. They had no real direction. And they ended up gathering around David. But David went through this time where even though he was anointed king and he was promised the throne, it seemed like his life reflected the exact opposite for many years. He's wandering in caves. He's having to fear for his life. But God was doing a deep, profound work in David. He was preparing him. How many knows when you go through a lot of things in life, I just heard a a minister recently saying this so eloquently. He was saying that there's some people that get thrust into positions like that, and they, they never have to go through a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty. And they feel almost like I deserve this. I have a right to be here. They have a superiority attitude. They have a tendency to be prideful. They look down on others, etc. But when you've been through what David went through for so long, and you went through what Joseph went through, when you end up in those positions, you're humble. You're really humble. You don't feel like you don't feel like you deserve it. You feel like it was the grace of God. You don't look down on other people because you feel like you're not any better than anybody else. You feel like you're a person of the people. And there's a big difference. And that's the difference between Saul and David. You see, Saul, you know, always had everything going for him, so to speak. And he got thrust in this position. And he ended up failing God big time. David, on the other hand, think about David for a moment. David probably felt like such a loser. Because he's the youngest, and he was because of that, he was thrust out in the fields to do the chores nobody else wanted to do. He was out there having to watch the sheep. And even when Samuel comes to his father's house and says, God's going to anoint one of your sons, it never even entered his father's mind to even bring up David's name. Think about this. He's one of the sons, but it never even entered his dad's mind. His dad thought to himself, well, you know, it's not going to be him of all people. And so they go down the line. And once again, Samuel's probably thinking to himself, I remember when I anointed Saul. Saul was tall, handsome, athletic, looked like a king, all this stuff. And, and Samuel's thinking to himself, well, surely this one. And God interrupts Samuel because Samuel's a true prophet of God. And he, God, he hears God's voice. And God tells Samuel, do not look at outward appearance. Because I look at the heart, and I have rejected him as king. And so Samuel has to go down the line, and still, even as he's going, the father never thought in his mind. You see how David would have, he was the guy that nobody ever thought would amount to anything. But he ended up being the very one that God picked, that God anointed, and God raised him up. And I'm going to explain this as I go. Now, in... David's travels, I'm going to deal with this, Lord willing, over the next several weeks. But I'm going to deal with, um, there's seven places that David went in his travels while he was going through difficulties. The first one is Naoth and Ramah, which means a high place. This is learning your authority in Christ. Ezel had to do with Jonathan's help, has to learn, learning the person work of the Holy Spirit. You can read this knob, his fruitfulness has to, you know, learning how to pray. 
Um, Gath has to do with the crushed grape. Has, David had to learn the power of the blood. And David even marched for a time with the enemy, with the Philistines. And I'll explain that. Mis, uh, Mispah means watchtower. This is the power of the Lord's name and our words, etc. Remember the Bible says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. And Judah, praise, learning the power of praise and worship. And finally, Hereth. And this, this is the one that nobody wants to talk about, but it has to do with being hedged about with thorns. This is suffering and seclusion. This is part of the process. And David had to go through all of this. And David's heart, before I get into the next thing, let me say this. Whenever God had Moses build the tabernacle, and the children of Israel finally took the land under Joshua, they took most of the land, but they didn't conquer everything. You remember? And God told them that the people that remained would be thorns in their side. And so the children of Israel began to grow and become more populous. They kept backsliding. So God kept having to raise up a judge that would deliver them from the hands of their enemies. And they'd see revival. They'd repent, get back right with God, etc. The last place that we know of where the tabernacle ended up was in a place called Gibeah. The tabernacle's there. And the tabernacle was where everybody was supposed to bring their sacrifices. Remember that? But Israel, for whatever reason, lazy, probably. Um, but it, was, it was somewhat of a rebellious thing. But Israel, instead of taking all of their sacrifices to the tabernacle, which I'm sure they still took some, but they began to create these high places. This was hills, mountains, where they would build an altar to the Lord. And people would go up there and pray. This, in essence, was a place where um, Saul went up to, to worship and pray, no doubt. And we know Solomon went up to one of those places to pray. And we know that, um, you remember whenever Elijah went up to Mount Carmel, and it says that he confronted the prophets of Baal, and he rebuilt the altar of the Lord that Jezebel had torn down. Remember that? This would have been one of those high places. So these were places that people um, built an altar and they did sacrifices and they worshiped God, but really it provoked the Lord because it really wasn't his prescribed way. You hear what I'm saying? But at the same time, God kind of worked with the situation. Well, David had such a heart for God, and David being of the tribe of Judah really didn't know how to reverence things the way he should have like the Levites would, but David had such a heart for God's presence. And so he conquers Jerusalem. Makes it the city of the great king. Builds himself a throne there. And he knows by the spirit of God, no doubt, that this is the place where God is now going to deposit his presence. And so now he's got to get the ark out of Gibeah, out of the tabernacle, and get it into Jerusalem. So David goes and he takes all of his men they, they put it on an ox cart. They go to take the ark of God from Gibeah, from the tabernacle, into Jerusalem. But the problem was along the way that they weren't doing it the prescribed way. And we know the story that Uzzah, the ark uh, was on a cart, and the cart probably hit some kind of a big pothole, and it looked like the ark was going to fall off. And so Uzzah was just trying to be a good guy and reaches up to, to push on the ark to keep it from falling, but God strikes him dead. Because he's not supposed to touch the ark. And David had a fear of God come on him that day. 
And David started realizing, I'm going to have to learn. I want to bring the presence of God here, but I'm going to have to learn how to handle this. So he ended up having to get the Levites, the priest, and do this the right way. But temporarily, it stayed in, at Obed-Edom's house. Anyway, David now, later on, brings the Ark of God to Jerusalem. He pitches a big tent around it, and he establishes 24-7 worship and prayer around the Ark. And this becomes known as David's Tabernacle. Now, the, the last place we know of the, ta- the actual Tabernacle is still in Gibeah. But now the ark of God is in Jerusalem. This was kind of a limbo time. This was a time where there was a transition going on. And David was sensing this transition of God. And David brought the ark there. But David had a heart to build God a temple. But he wasn't the one that was going to do it. But he stored up great wealth. If you studied, it was great wealth. And he passed it to Solomon. And Solomon ended up being the one to build the temple of God where the glory was. Now, all this is important. As we go, this is going to make sense. God chooses the foolish and the weak things. Y'all ready? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1.18. Now, I'm going to go down to, I believe, around 30, 31. Okay? So, just follow with me. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now I want you to notice as I go, foolishness to those who are perishing. And it goes on to say, it it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom. How many knows the world has a wisdom? And then God has a wisdom. And they are nothing alike. They're mutually exclusive from one another. You can't really have both work well together. I'm going to really explain this because I'm talking about the difference between Saul and David. How, given the opportunity, man will always choose a Saul. But given the same opportunity, God will always choose a David. Just follow me because this will make sense. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, look at this, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world's wisdom does not lead people to God. The world's wisdom will actually lead people away from God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now that statement is true today. Just like it was back then. The Jews look for a sign and the Gentiles look for wisdom. You hear what I'm saying? But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it seems foolish. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'm dealing here with something that can be really life-changing for people if they'll grasp this because people don't mean to that but they're constantly trying to figure out through the wisdom of men how to advance the kingdom of god now let me show you what i mean <clears throat> there are people that you can hire as a church that will come into your church and they will tell you and I know this for a fact because I've actually talked to people that's done this. They will tell you if you paint the walls a certain color because they'll study the demographics where you live. If you have a certain color carpet, if you put up certain types of paintings, if you get the decor a certain way, if you have a certain style of music, excluding certain instruments, adding others, you have a certain style in your preaching, if you do all of this, that you will be able to grow this church. Which it actually does work, but it's not from God. You hear what I'm saying? People sit in meetings and talk about, you know, what can we do to get more people to come? And it's basic business marketing that you're taught in college. It's not complicated. They say, well, if we give people what they want, we advertise, we promote our product, we do what we're going to do to, to keep everybody hyped up and energetic about what's going on, and they know how to use the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom of this world will never, ever truly bring um, spiritual change, eternal change, heart change, the type of change that the Spirit of God will do. It'll never happen. All they're doing is building something through worldly methods that ends up being worldly itself. And then the Bible goes on to say in verse 26, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Paul is really encouraging us right here. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> He's saying not many of you guys, River of Life, Pastor Scott, not many of you were wise and noble. But he said, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things um, of the world to shame things that are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify things that are. So that no man can boast before the Lord. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's already made his choice. I think as I explain this now, it's going to make a lot of sense. But God's already made his choice. God chooses the things that man would not choose. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. God is not impressed with the wisdom of this world, but His wisdom is displayed at the cross. Something that seems so foolish to the world. I mean, think about it for a minute. I say this with the utmost reverence, but you have a nude man dying on a cross. 
Do you realize how foolish that seems to the world? What does that have to do with me? What does something 2,000 years ago have to do with my sin today? It doesn't make sense to them. The spirit of this world, and the Bible uses those words, the spirit of this present world has to do with the wisdom of this world. And it also has to do with human ability. The things of the Spirit of God seem so foolish to the world, yet the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Y'all hear me? The cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Now here's where we're going to get down to what I'm trying to make a point. God has to cast down human pride. This is what all of this is about. Y'all hearing me? Human wisdom... Human power does not impress God at all. It is actually a barrier between people and God. Let me say that again. Human wisdom and human power does not impress God. It is actually a barrier between people and God. It is pride and it must be brought down. I can't help but think about Zechariah 4.6. Here's this prophet Zechariah. Israel had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Daniel prays. Cyrus begins to send him back. We know the story. They come back with Ezra. They start rebuilding the temple. There was a man named Joshua then. It's not the same one from many years earlier. Okay, this is Joshua who was a priest. And then you had a man named Zerubbabel who was the king, the leader, the governor, whatever it was sanctioned to be. At that time. And Zechariah was the prophet. And Zerubbabel was discouraged. He's thinking to himself. Here we are a bunch of refugees from Babylon. We've got to come back and take on the task. Of rebuilding Solomon's temple. This is utterly impossible. Solomon had the wealth of David. He not only had the greatest men of that time. That knew how to do it in Israel. But they even hired people from outside to come in. And bring all of this and. And I'm looking at this with my hands up in the air going, God, this is actually impossible what you're asking me to do. We'll do our best. And they were living in difficult times. Because if you go on to read later about Nehemiah, they were surrounded by these Samaritans and people that wanted their downfall and destruction and persecuted them the whole time. And Zerubbabel was discouraged. He's thinking, how could I possibly do this? And Zechariah comes to him with an encouraging word from the Lord. And he said this, if, if you don't mind me paraphrasing, this is what Zerubbabel says, or Zechariah says to Zerubbabel. He said, listen, you're thinking in human terms. You're thinking in human wisdom. You're trying to calculate this. You're, try, you're thinking about human strength. But he says, hear the word of the Lord. It's not going to be by human strength. It's not going to be by human might. It's going to be by my spirit that this is accomplished. And Zechariah brought that encouraging word to Zerubbabel. And he told him, he said, don't be discouraged. The same hands that laid this foundation will be the same hands that completed. In other words, you started it and God's going to help you finish it. And that's exactly what happened. What I'm trying to get at is this. River of Life, hear me. All throughout the rest of your life, 
you're going to have to decide whether you're going to do things the way of the world or the way of the Lord, and they're going to be mutually exclusive. They're going to be at war with one another. I'll do my best to try to explain what I'm trying to say. But if we're going to do things God's way, you have to be willing to look like a complete fool to the world and to look like a fool to the religious community. Because they are doing things in worldly wisdom. And when people are trying to do things by the Spirit of God, they seem so stupid to those that are doing it through the methods of the world. Well, let me tell you how important this is. God will never bless the spirit of this world. He'll never bless the ways of this world. And if you're going to use the methods of the world to try to change people, it's never really going to work. People try to use human psychology. They try to use philosophy. Are y'all hearing me? They're trying to use all kinds of methods of the world to advance the kingdom of God. But the truth of the matter is that it is only, it's not by might nor by power from the human perspective. It's only going to be accomplished by the Spirit of God. Y'all hear what I'm saying? It is only the Holy Spirit that can draw people to Jesus. It is only the Holy Spirit that can convict somebody's heart. It is only the Holy Spirit that can grant somebody repentance. It is only the Holy Spirit that can cause somebody to be born again. See, as we go about this thing, we have to understand that some are watering, some are planting. But the Bible is very clear. God says, but God is the God of increase. God is the one who causes the increase. But people want to do it themselves. I heard a preacher say this. I love this. It is so true. He said this. He said, I've traveled the world. He said, I'm older now. He said, I've been all over the world. He said, I have preached in all kinds of churches, literally all over the world. And he said that I find place after place after place after place where a group of people, they have everything the way they feel like it needs to be. He said they really feel like we've got it all together. They've got the decor the way they want it. They've got the music the way they want it. They've got the preaching the way they want it. They've got everything the way they want it. And they feel like we've got it all together. He said, I've preached in these places all over the world. And he said, hear what I'm saying. He said, God will bypass those people every single time. Every time. And he'll go, and these are his exact words. I'm quoting this man. He said, God will go find a place, usually a smaller group of people, that don't feel like they have it all together. They don't feel like they got it all figured out. They're desperate for God. They're crying out to God. And he said, in, those, in that place with those people, God will pour out his spirit in an awesome way and will do things through them that the others will never see. You hear what I'm saying? Is this making sense tonight? Is we're going to have to choose which path we're going to go. Now, I already made up my mind a long time ago. But you're going to look like a fool to the world. Because the world is, is, you know, 
they feel like, well, you know, we can just do it ourselves. We got it all figured out. But that will never change anybody. God is the God. Did you know that whenever, you know, many times we talk about Jesus showing up and saying, cast your net on the other side of the boat. But that actually had to have happened twice because when Jesus called Peter at the beginning, um, that same thing happened. And Peter, as he began to follow the Lord, one of the reasons Peter followed the Lord is because he saw that miraculous catch of fish. He saw that miracle. And later, after Peter denied Christ and Jesus stood on the shore, he said, cast a net on the other side. Remember that? And Peter couldn't pull it back in. But this is the God that we serve. Think about this for a minute. There's no way in the natural that that could be accomplished. You've got people that are trained fishermen that have been fishing all night. They know, they know what they're doing. They know where to put the boat. They know what time of the day to go. They've got their nets. They know how to cast the net. They know what nets to use. And they've been fishing all night with their human efforts with their human wisdom, hello? And it's not really doing anything. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, just cast your net on the other side of the boat. Every bit of human wisdom in Peter is saying this makes absolutely no sense. But he does it as an act of obedience and God does something supernatural. What I'm trying to get at is what Peter could never have accomplished in his human wisdom and in his human strength, Christ did in a moment. I believe with all my heart, there's people out there that say we want revival. And they're praying for revival. And I'm not saying this to be disrespectful, but I've thought about this for a long time and I really believe what I'm saying is true. They don't know what revival is. They think revival is God is just going to bless their little human efforts and their little human wisdom and what they've already been doing and just make it bigger and better. They think that's revival. You know what revival is? Revival is when Jesus comes in and goes, all of your human wisdom, all of your human power, all of that is out the window. I've come to take completely over You're going to do it my way. And we're going to see a supernatural harvest you would have never seen. That's real revival. A lot of people don't want that because that's uncomfortable. Because man is now out of control. I believe with all my heart that the Apostle Paul struggled with pride. I really do. I've studied this. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And therefore, because he was a Pharisee, he was part of the elite group. Everybody looked up to him. You know, the Pharisees walked around town in their fancy little get-up, and everybody was like, oh, he's a Pharisee. Seriously, they did that. And so Paul would walk around, you know, like he's a big shot, going to town, and everybody looked up to him. And I believe with all my heart, here he was. He was intelligent. Um, Being a Pharisee, I'm sure that, you know, they had a lot of financial wealth too, but He studied under Gamaliel, which was this brilliant uh, Jewish leader. And Paul had a pride issue. And Jesus appears to Paul, knocks him off his donkey on the ground, blinds the man. He gets healed after a few days. He gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
And God has got to begin a process in Paul. The Apostle Paul writes in his early letters, and he says, Look, I am no less than these so-called super apostles out there. But then later, as Paul has been through some more hardships in life, Paul writes in his letters a little bit later, I'm the least of the apostles. Then Paul keeps going through hardships. He's beaten, you know, stoned, imprisoned. He's going through it. And then he writes later, he says, you know what? I'm the least of all the Christians. And before Paul died in his last letters to Timothy, he wrote, actually, I'm the chief of sinners. You see, a process of humility. But what happened was, Paul talked about it right here. I'm about to read it. God gave Paul a thorn in the side. And in the Bible, thorns are always speaking of actually people that are a thorn in the side. And what happened was, God allowed there to be some kind of a fallen angel that would follow Paul around and would stir up all this persecution against him. And these people that were like thorns in his side that would riot and they would want to kill him. They'd want him thrown in prison. They want him to get, you know, flogged and beaten. And that fallen angel would follow him around and keep stirring up all this stuff against him. And this is what Paul wrote. He said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that was given to him, remember? For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, how many would like to have a fallen angel follow you around everywhere you go and stir up people that want you dead? But concerning this, He said, I implored the Lord, I prayed, I earnestly prayed to the Lord three times that he would remove this thing. I would too. Wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, he didn't mention fasting, but I would have fasted, you know. (laughs) I would have had other people pray. (laughs) But the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. How do you get grace? The Lord said, I give my grace to the humble. God was trying to show Paul, the more that you humble yourself down, the more you learn this lesson of humility, the more grace. Israel came out of Egypt. And the Bible is real clear about this if you study it, that God allowed them to go through these things in the wilderness to test them. They came to the bitter waters and etc., And God was testing them, but he was trying to allow them to be humbled. To where now they totally depended on God. See, humility is not what a lot of people think it is. It's it's not insecure. I mean, if you're really humble, you're bold. But humility is where you really are humble and dependent on God in every way. You give God all the glory. You realize that any good thing in your life is from him. You make sure that you understand That you're totally dependent on him. I can just see Paul coming out of being that Pharisee and getting saved. And him thinking to himself, I got it all together. 
I remember when Paul was in Athens. And Paul was there among all these idols. Remember the story? And there was, a, there was an idol there to the unknown God. And so I can just imagine Paul. And listen, I'm not picking on the man because he's this great champion. And I probably would have done the same thing. We've all got our journey. But he made a mistake. He found this idol and he said, hmm. He was talking to Greek philosophers here. And he says, let me get philosophical with you. <laughs> Big mistake. This was the worst evangelistic story in Paul's history that we know of. He tried to wax eloquent. You know, <laughs> he tried to get philosophical. Let me, let me talk to you about the unknown God. And he starts getting real philosophical with them and gets into debating with them. But when he gets to Jesus being raised from the dead, they start mocking him. And they walk off calling him an idiot and a fool. And nobody got saved that day. And Paul learned a valuable lesson that I've had to learn. And he learned this. When he came to the Corinthians later, he wrote and he said this. I don't come to you with eloquent words and the wisdom of men. I come to you in much fear and trembling, but I come to you in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because the kingdom of God is not talk, but power. And he learned, I will only preach among you Christ crucified, the power of God unto salvation. You see what I'm saying? He went through a time where he thought, I'll get philosophical. I'll debate. I got this. Remember, I got a Pharisee background. I can handle this. I mean, you know all the debates went on between those Pharisees and Sadducees. He's in there listening to all these people fighting, arguing, fussing, everything else. He said, I got this. So I'll go in here and got it all figured out. And nobody got saved. But when the Apostle Paul's greatest missionary journey was when he went to Ephesus a second time. Acts chapter 19 he comes into Ephesus, and it was the Spirit of God that fell. It was the power of God. And the power of God was so strong that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, I want you to think about something. That means in the early church that there were all kinds of common miracles. Anybody ever think about that for a minute? What happened? There's all kinds of common miracles, things that are going on just all the time. But God even did extraordinary miracles through Paul that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had prayed over were sent out and the sick were healed and all that. All the province of Asia heard the gospel. He was there for two years. So many people in the occult got saved. They brought all their witchcraft paraphernalia and burned it. It created a huge bonfire. But he learned the difference between trying to depend on his human wisdom and his human ability to do something that only God can actually do. <coughs> I'm going to finish reading this. God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Y'all hearing that? Power, God's power is perfected in our weakness. And Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell on me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Because when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Paul had to learn this humbling lesson. I can't depend on my human wisdom. I can't depend on my human ability to see something done that only the Spirit of God can do. I've got to humble myself and be totally, completely dependent on God to show up. That the Spirit of God will do it. There's actually a curse that's connected with those that trust in the flesh. Jeremiah 17.5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see prosperity when it comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Please hear what I'm about to say. There are people out there that feel they got it all together. They've got exactly the place they want. They got it decorated the way they want. They got the music just like they want. They got everything figured out. They got it all figured out. And in the natural, it looks so good. But in the spiritual, God says they're just a dry bush in a wilderness. There's no move of my spirit. There's no real life. There's nobody really truly getting saved. It is dead and dry and it's under a curse. But here, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water. That extends its roots by a stream. And will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought. Nor cease to yield fruit. Those are the blessed who trust in the Lord. The God of increase. The God of the sovereign and the supernatural. The God who says cast the net on the other side of the boat and there's a miraculous harvest. But here's where I want to transition and start closing right here. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, I want you to notice this. The heart is deceitful. Who can understand the heart? Who can understand your own heart? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. This is where I want to close right here. This is so vitally important that you get what I'm about to say because this actually could change your life. And I'm going to deal with iniquity. David and Saul, two very different people. Saul represents trusting in the flesh. David represents trusting in the Lord. Saul was the, the person everybody would have picked. David was the person nobody would have picked. But David had to deal with something in his heart later in life because he didn't deal with it when he was young. It caught up with him. And I'm going to share that as I close. But as I get to that, I'm just going to read over this. I want you to take notes here. There's four sides of the bronze altar that represent the cross. The first aspect of the cross is that Jesus, because of what he did, our sins are forgiven. Okay? They're pardoned. But the second side is that your sin and your iniquity 
are taken away. They're taken out of you. There's a difference. Because some people's sin is forgiven, but they still have a lot of struggles. There's something in them that needs to be removed. There's some iniquity that still abides. So number one, the first side, your sins are forgiven. But the second side is when John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Now I'm going to show you here in a minute. The third side is death and resurrection. This is where you're a new creation. Old things pass away, everything becomes new. And that literally, you're different. You're raised to new life. People look at you, you're a changed person. The fourth side is altogether different. This is a sacrificial life where you lay your life on the altar and say, Lord, I'm a living sacrifice. Burn out of me whatever needs to go, but use me for your glory. Four different things, all wrapped up in the cross, very significant. There are seven places Jesus shed his blood. Well, let me say this. I'm sorry, I skipped this. The nature of the lamb. I mentioned this last week. Jesus is described as the lamb of God and the Holy Spirit described as a dove. I don't believe that Jesus took on the form of a lamb. I believe he looked like a human being. Okay? In the same way, I personally don't believe the Holy Spirit took on the form of a dove, but that's my opinion. I believe he came down in bodily form, but he settled gently on Jesus like a dove would. But when John saw this, this really speaks to me because the dove will come where the nature of the lamb is. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The dove will settle where the nature of the lamb is. But where the nature of the lamb is not, the dove will not abide. If you want the dove to settle upon your life and remain, you're going to have to carry the nature of the lamb. So what marks Jesus' life? Four things. First off, he was holy. That means he was set apart. Number two, he was pure. You're going to have to let God purify you. Righteousness, purity. Number three, he was humble. The fruit of the Spirit was evident, but he was humble. And number four, he had a sacrificial life. He laid down his life and said, I do not live for myself. He took on the form of a servant. And he did what the Father was doing. He spoke what the Father was speaking. And he willingly lived a sacrificial life. There are seven places Jesus shed his blood. I've got to just read it quickly because we've already been over it. The garden, also his face, this represents rebellion. That is, Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden. They said, not your will, but my will be done. Jesus was in the garden said, not my will, but your will be done. He broke the power of rebellion. Number two, the crown. This has to do with your thought life and the power of poverty being broken. <clears throat> Number three is the back for healing. Number four and five is the hands. Number uh, five and, or six and seven is the feet. And then after his death, Jesus bled water and blood from his side. Water and blood came out of his side. To purchase children and a bride, which I've already been through this, so I'm going real quickly. But remember at a, a birth of a child, there's blood and water. And also Adam's rib, a wife was taken from his rib in the same way Christ was paying for children and for a bride, okay? 
I'm trying to show you the the all um, the exhaustive work, if you will, of what Jesus did at the cross. What he did was so thorough. And with that said, this is what I'm going to close with is about iniquity. But I can't dwell on this because of time. So I might have to kind of go over it quickly. But sin, transgression, and iniquity are not the same thing in the Bible. Remember last week I had to talk to you about the difference between the anointing and the glory. I had to talk about the difference between other things. We have to discuss this because these are three different things and it's important. Sin means to miss the mark in the Bible. You can look this up. And the Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory. John, 1 John says if we say that we're without sin, we just deceive ourselves. These are the, the aspect of us missing the mark. Everybody misses the mark. No matter how spiritual you are, you're not perfect. You're not going to be perfect until you see the Lord. That's why John goes on to say, look, if you sin, God confess your sin because he's faithful just to forgive you. All right, the next is transgression. Transgression in the Bible, if you look it up, means rebellion. This is different. Sin is not premeditated. Everybody grab this because this is really important. Sin is not premeditated. Transgression, rebellion is premeditated. Rebellion is much more serious because the person knows what they're about to do is wrong, but they're going to do it anyway. This is rebellion against God Almighty. And then iniquity means bent, crooked, or perverse. Iniquity is something altogether different. Iniquity is like roots that are wrapped up in people, inside them, wrapped up in them, that cause them to continually struggle with certain sins in their life. Many Christians never pray about iniquity because they've never heard a sermon about it. But you can see sin, transgression, and iniquity in the garden because Eve, the Bible says, that Eve was deceived. And so she sinned. It wasn't intentional. She was tricked. But the Bible says that Adam transgressed. Adam knew what he was doing. Adam knew that it was wrong, and he did it anyway. There is a difference. He rebelled. Did you know in the Greek, whenever Satan appeared to Jesus and said, these kingdoms were given to me, if you worship me, I'll give them to you. Did you know that the word in Greek for given actually means this? They were betrayed into my hands. They were betrayed to me. It's the same word that was used describing Judas. Adam knew what he was doing. He rebelled which was much more serious. And then Lucifer in the garden had entered the snake, and the Bible says about Lucifer that iniquity was found in him. And this is important. Iniquity, not sin, iniquity. And where was it? In him. And so as he entered the garden through the snake, and Eve was tricked, but Adam knew what he was doing, and they, they ate of the fruit, and they rebelled against God. They betrayed God. When they did this, the iniquity began to take root in them. The Bible goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 1.15, how can something crooked be made straight? 
See, there's these bent, crooked things within people, these roots in them of iniquity drives that they continually seem to struggle. But what was the iniquity that was in Lucifer? Pride that led to rebellion. And that is the root issue across the board in humanity is a pride that leads to rebellion. Just about everything going on can be found back to those roots of pride and rebellion. If you think about it, after you leave here, think about it, you'll see what I'm saying. Just about all the problems in the human race can be traced back to a form of pride and rebellion against God. How can what is crooked be made straight? Well, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. Meaning, when you're pierced, you bleed outwardly. And he was bruised for our iniquity. A bruise, you bleed inwardly. The punishment that brought peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. So Jesus paid for it. It was exhaustive. Everything that we need was paid for at the cross. And so iniquity is altogether different than just sin. Iniquity is a real bondage in people. Iniquity is travel, travels down family bloodlines because in uh, Exodus chapter 20, the Bible says to those who hate me, talking about idolaters, he said, I will visit the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. There is an iniquity that goes down family lines that's roots in people. And they wonder, why do I have this drive where it seems like there's such a sexual lust and such perverted desires? And I've asked God to forgive me, and I know he's forgiven me, but why is that drive still there? They say, why do I struggle so much with being prideful? Why do I struggle so much with being rebellious? I've asked God to forgive me. I don't want to deal with this, but it just seems like there's a tendency to be rebellious. Why is it that I have this tendency to be a gossip and a talebearer, just like mom was, just like grandma was? Why do I have something in me that's like a love of money and a materialistic aspect to me? Why is that there? Just like I saw in granddad. It's so important that we deal with this. How many would agree with Pastor Scott? I don't want to leave this for my kids to deal with. I want it dealt with in me and in my family now. See, the problem was David, as awesome as David was, a man after God's own heart, a wonderful man, somebody that God made a covenant with, that he would always have a descendant on the throne. And Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus, think about this, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. I mean, what an honor. God loved David. But yet David, against all um, of his nature, so to speak, his heart after God. Nobody would have expected this out of such a great man of God. But later in life, he has somebody murdered and he commits adultery. Why in the world does he have somebody murdered and commit adultery later in life whenever he's such a man of God, a man after God's own heart? Where did this come from? Well, here's the important part. David understood after he did it, he prayed and sought God. 
In Psalm 51, starting with verse 5, Psalm 51 is the psalm where David really repented before God. And listen to what he said. I was born in iniquity. He realized that there was iniquity in him that had rose up later in life and it caused him to do something he didn't want to do. How many people have dealt with a Jezebel spirit in their family? And they have a tendency to be rebellious against their husband. How many people have dealt with things in their family and they see it there and they wonder, why is this there? Why am I dealing with this? I'm a Christian. I've asked forgiveness. But there's still a tendency. David said in Psalm 90 verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you. Now here's the important part. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. These are things that we cannot see about ourselves unless God help us to see them. One of the wisest prayers you can pray is God help me to see the things about myself that I need to repent of that I cannot see. That God will help you. He'll shine his light and you'll begin to see things that you haven't seen before. Many people later in life are tested with success. Because what they've been praying for, what they wanted, what their hearts desire, now they're seeing success in life, whatever that is. Their hearts desire. The last thing you want then is for the iniquity that had been laying dormant to rise up and you begin to do something that sabotages yourself. How many ministers, how many ministries have fallen that maybe when they were younger in the Lord, had they discerned the iniquity in them and really prayed about it, God would have took it out of them and it wouldn't have come up later on in life. So I'm going to give you around nine categories I should have put on here. I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't. But greed and the love of money is definitely one. But I want us to really pray about this stuff. You guys know, I don't even have to tell people, you know that there's aspects in your family there's traits, there's things that you've seen in your life that you've prayed about over and over. And see, a lot of times people wonder, why is there this stubborn sickness? Why is there this generational thing that seems to still be tormenting my life with sickness or failure or having relationship problems or something like that? And they don't realize that the root is iniquity. And once that root is removed, everything else is going to leave because it doesn't have anything to hang on to anymore. It's clinging to the roots. And here's a list. You might write greed and, rebel, or green and love, greed and the love of money on here as well. But pride and rebellion, that's number one. How many people have dealt with spiritual pride? Looking down on others, pride about looks, wealth, and status, and knowledge. It seems to me like of all the things to be prideful about, the, the one that seems to be the hardest for people is their human intellect. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. And we've got to be willing to cast down that human pride. Listen, the Bible doesn't say for us to pray that God humble us. The Bible says over and over and over and over and over, humble yourself. We need God, the Holy Spirit, to help us but humility is a mindset. Praying and asking God to humble you isn't really the best prayer. 
But because God can humiliate you. God can humiliate you, but that's not really God's will. God wants you to humble yourself. And so the way that we humble ourselves is that we cast down all human pride, everything that we've trusted in, every area where we think we've got this, every area we think we're so smart, and we're just so handsome, and we just got it all figured out, all of that is cast down. And we realize we are totally dependent on God. He is our source. You can humble yourself, literally with body postures, you can humble yourself in prayer and fasting. But, excuse me, but pride has got to be cast down. And so number one is confessing the sin of pride and rebellion that's in your life and in your ancestry. Judging others, being critical. Now God the Holy Spirit through you will help you with these things. Also, idolatry, cults, and the occult. How many people have had some kind of a fascination or a draw toward the occult? They had some kind of a draw toward darkness, toward other religions, There's something there. There's a root. Also religion, a religious spirit, legalism, criticism. A whole other category can be Loshan Hara, which is evil speaking. That, along with the greed, makes up about nine categories. But Loshan Hara is gossip. Also, sexual sins, rebellion, witchcraft, control, Jezebel, unfaithfulness, whoredoms, broken vows, broken covenants. How many people in their family has had divorces? They've had people that have been unfaithful to God. They're continually backsliding. They're in church. Then they're back in sin. They're unfaithful to God. They're unfaithful to people. They're disloyal to friends. Maybe they cheated on their spouse, etc. <clears throat> there's something there. And finally, when there's bloodshed, murder, violence, and abortions, these are serious. I can pretty much guarantee you that in the sound of my voice, probably about 90% of things that you've gotten prayer about in the past and you did not get a breakthrough if you will really humble yourself and pray about this stuff, I almost guarantee about 90% it'll start moving. This is the root. These are the, this is the area that people have got to be willing to humble themselves. You know, you've got things in family lines like the, a lot of times there's alcoholism and there's, there's different bondages to addictions, drugs, There's things in family lines like going back in my family, there's the Native American. There's also Freemasonry, things like that. These things form root systems in family lines. But this is what I want to close with and we're going to pray. I believe that Jesus paid for it in full. And I believe that people will really humble themselves and ask forgiveness for this in you and in your family, it's important that you confess the sins of your ancestors. That's where a lot of this comes from. 
God is going to begin to pull this all completely out of people. <clears throat> and the result will be that there's going to be a freedom you've not known. There's going to be breakthroughs in healing. There's going to be breakthroughs in a lot of different areas. Y'all ready? I want us to really pray about this tonight.